the TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who feels love in the air for one of our favorite television couples, my co-host. Hey, everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we're going to be reviewing a combination of season finales and penultimate episodes of Once Upon a Time, Bones, Castle, Fringe, and Supernatural, as well as our favorite comedic moments from Modern Family, The Big Bang Theory, and Community. But before we get into all of that, we have news with Nico. With much of the news this week dealing with new shows that networks are picking up for next season, and that topic being entirely too large to cover here in the News with Nico section, and also the fact that Dan and I usually do a preview show later in the summer to cover all the new shows and give you an idea of which ones look good for next season, I figured I'd stick mostly to the shows that were canceled already in this week's edition of News with Nico. And the first one that really caught my eye was Fox cancels both Alcatraz and The Finder, along with Breaking In. We kind of knew Breaking In was coming. Yeah, the J.J. Abrams thriller and the Bones spinoff both launched at the mid-season with much fanfare and some decent ratings to start off with. But those initial numbers did not hold. The Finder was eventually banished to Friday nights, which is where it will complete its run this week. After Fox had removed all future episodes of Breaking In from the schedule earlier this spring, and I announced here on ATA, it was not really a question of if, but rather when, official word would come of its second cancellation. Fox did that earlier this week. Instead, Fox actually decided to keep Touch, starring Kiefer Sutherland. Dan and I predicted that only one of the three, Alcatraz, The Finder, or Touch, would survive. But seriously, Touch? That was not one I would have guessed. It's because of Al- their relationship with Kiefer Sutherland, probably. I think you're, I think you're right. Yeah. Because Alcatraz, though severely down in the ratings, was the best show of the three and probably should have gotten the benefit of the doubt for a second season. Yeah. Even though I many times said it was, it was tough to cover on ATA. They, they just didn't get their crap together fast enough. Yeah. Cougar Town jumps to TBS. TBS has officially plucked Cougar Town from ABC in a deal that paves the way for a 15-episode fourth season to debut in early 2013. In addition, TBS has acquired rerun rights to the show's first three seasons. This move caps a challenging year for the cul-de-sac crew that included a delayed third season, a trimmed episode order, a less-than-ideal Tuesday time slot, and an unprecedented grassroots PR campaign organized and funded by co-creator Bill Lawrence. It's really unclear what changes, if any, will be made to the show in advance to its relocation to TBS, but I have a feeling it's going to remain mostly the same, because that's why fans continue to flock to the show. And Abed, you can now watch it on TBS. Yes. NBC might shorten its returning comedies. 
NBC is solving its dilemma of what comedy should we renew by re- renewing lots of them for shortened 13-episode seasons. It's kind of a have-their-cake-and-eat-it-too situation that would allow NBC to air farewell seasons for 30 Rock and The Office while simultaneously launching new comedies to replace them. The report also says that Whitney is probably not going to get one of these 13-episode seasons and is just rather probably done. Community's future, however, is still up in the air, and it could get a full another season, a shortened 13-episode season, or possibly get cut completely. Though, with it getting the 90-minute sweeps week, I'm yeah. guessing it's probably going to be renewed, and I'm hoping that is the case. Parks the freshest and, out of the three. True. And Parks and Recreation is also likely to return, though that I think sense. it's sort of jumped the shark and is beyond its shelf life. But, you know, I was never a big fan of it to begin with, so maybe I'm a little biased towards the negative. Okay. And that's the news with Nico for this week. So it seems like desperation time for NBC. Any word on ABC with their sitcoms? You know, I didn't hear anything specifically. I know they had already canceled a few of their new shows, like Best Friends was cut mid-season, some of the shows that didn't really get off the ground. But there's no word yet, with the upfronts coming the week after the finales in this week or next week, then we'll get a better feeling of what's going on, because they'll probably announce almost the complete fall season's schedules in that week, and then we'll have a better idea of which ones got cut. Modern Family was in good standing. TV by the numbers had it most definitely to be renewed, but it hasn't officially gotten that word yet. Okay. Yeah, the, the one I'm just curious about that's on the bubble ABC-wise is Last Man Standing. I, I know it's a little cliche for uh, the the sitcom viewer nowadays, but I enjoy it. So I was hoping they would live on. I do too. I enjoy it as well. My dad and I watch it together. We have fun laughing at Tim Allen. Yeah, I'm really hoping that'll last just for the fun I have watching it. But with that, we're going to talk about the ABC show that I think is fine in terms of next season since they are boasting on that network. It is the number one new drama. So let's talk about the Once Upon a Time episode, the penultimate episode to the finale. Did Apple read his blood? While Regina schemes to get Emma out of Storybrooke for good, Henry begs Emma to stay. Meanwhile, in the fairy tale world, Snow calls upon her allies to save Prince Charming and defeat the evil queen. This week's Once Upon a Time felt like part one of a two-part finale, meaning that we could give you a few highlights from the episode, get a little bit of speculation about next week. But as far as giving a verdict on this episode goes, we're going to have to wait until our next episode, where we will have the entire story. First off, a few podcasts back, I somewhat criticized the Mad Hatter episode for feeling too standalone because setting up plot lines for season two, when the show really needed to focus on what was going on currently. But with this episode, okay, much better understood its importance with it explaining why Mary Margaret was mad at Emma for leaving in the middle of the night and bringing a certain object into the story that acted as the catalyst for Emma finally believing in magic. But before we get into this object, I have to say that this episode focused on the two strongest love stories that have taken place during this first season of Once Upon a Time. Snow White and Prince Charming in the fairy tale world and Emma being reunited with Henry, the son she gave away. With the fairy tale stories, things were incredibly action-packed, with Snow White, the Seven Dwarfs, Red Riding Hood, Granny, and the Fairies all trying to save Prince Charming from the Wicked Queen's dungeon, where they made the horrible discovery that she trapped Charming inside her mirror, leaving Snow with no choice but to eat the Wicked Queen's poison apple to save Charming's life. 
As for the real world story, I felt really bad for Henry because it seemed like everyone around him could give it up on Operation Cobra. And what made things look extremely desperate for the poor kid was the scene he had with August slash Pinocchio where he finally got solid proof the fairy tale world was real and not just simply a part of his imagination because there was really nothing he could do to help the only person who took what he believed in seriously or Storybrooke for that matter as long as Emma didn't believe in magic. Although, sometimes props have a weird way of working themselves out, because the cool connection between the fairy tale story and the real world story, where the Mad Hatter used his hat to reach back in time and grab the poison apple that Snow White just took a bite out of, led to Regina making a poison apple cobbler that she gave Emma under the pretense they had worked out their differences with Emma deciding to leave Storybrooke. Now, I know what you were thinking. How is Emma receiving a poison apple cobbler a good thing? Okay, why was she gullible enough to accept food from Regina? Wouldn't Emma as sheriff be suspicious about something like this? Especially with Regina baking something for her without even knowing she was coming over? Anyway, the logistics of this is not really that important, since ultimately this show needed to send us into the season finale, bringing Emma's relationship with Henry to the forefront. Because the hero in a story can only learn the concept or ability needed for them to succeed from the very person that sent them on their journey. Meaning that in realizing desperate times requires desperate matters, Henry shockingly eats the apple cobbler to get Emma to believe in magic. So with that, Once Upon a Time's finale is going to throw us into two major confrontations. As the heroic characters of the fairy tale world strike back at the Wicked Queen for Snow White's supposed death. And Emma goes head to head with Regina to save Henry's life. In the fairy tale world, things are probably going to work out the normal way they would in fairy tales, with good triumphing over evil. But in the real world, I think the outcome is going to be much more gray, because either the citizens of Storybrooke are going to regain their memories of the fairy tale world, or the two worlds are going to merge with disastrous results that need to be dealt with next season. Honestly, wherever the fight alley goes, I'm just excited to see how one of the best new shows this year wraps itself up. And I'm sure Nico is too, because he gives us his thoughts on this week's Once Upon a Time, as well as his predictions for the finale. Dan, I have to agree, this episode really did feel like a first half of a season finale, much like Fringe was split into two episodes, and really ramped up the action in that final scene. Though, did anyone really think that it was not going to be Henry that was poisoned? I mean, that was a little obvious, but still, it it worked the way it needed to work. And it needed to be done. Yes, absolutely. Most of this week's episode was about small character interactions. Mary Margaret and Emma shared a great scene that seemed very much like a mother scolding her daughter. Dan, we've been discussing the last few weeks about why Emma would suddenly want to run and hide. And I think you even said she seemed like she lost her mind for a little bit or had an emotional breakdown. But Mary Margaret points out that she's just reverting to her previous lifestyle. I think in our excitement for this show, we may have forgotten that Emma isn't the type to stay in one place very long, and that that tiny bit of battle made some of her behavior that seemed so out of place the last few weeks to fall into place for me. So really, that scene did a lot to help me out. Although I'm not talking about the parts when Emma makes stupid, not very bright decisions, but at least her shying away from responsibility and wanting to run away parts of her personality, that started to make some more sense again when I realized that's the way she used to be and she's just reverting. So that was that was a good scene, and I thought it really drove it home for me. Well, it also gave the actress who plays Snow White, a.k.a. Mary Margaret, a little more you know, street cred, too, because we did have kind of those horrific scenes with her and David. So it was yes. nice to see her have a good scene. I agree. 
I thought Emma and Dr. Harper's talk about Henry was a great way to set up the ending of this episode. Make Emma realize that Henry's life has been in turmoil since she arrived, and maybe she should think about leaving Storybrooke. And that is exactly what she decides to do. Also, given that we've seen Dr. Harper be timid in the past, I sort of admired how he didn't shy away from telling Emma the truth, that she doesn't have a case to get custody of Henry right now. Really, Regina would win that custody battle. It shows that glimmer of defiance or spirit we saw earlier this season has taken root inside of Dr. Harper. It's a little thing right now, but that assertiveness from him and maybe some others could be what turns the tide against Regina in Storybrooke, much like we saw this week in the fairy tale world with the dwarves and everyone turning against the queen. And speaking of the fairy tale world, I really did enjoy seeing Snow White, Red, Granny, and the Seven Dwarves storming the castle to stay Prince yes. Charming. It was maybe a little bit cheesy, but at the same time, it was really kind of fun at the same time. It was fun in its campiness, I almost thought. Well, and you can get away with it because it is a fairy tale world. Right, and that's where I I, I thought when the, the fairies came in and dive-bombed, that was a little ridiculous. But at the same time, I was okay with it because it was the fairy tale world. And it is a Disney show, so. Yeah, and in fact, the fairy tale world was one of the best parts of this episode for me. And I hope the story in the fairy tale world next week will catch us up to the moment of Emma's birth. I hope we get from the point we left off this week all the way up to Emma's birth. We've already seen that, but I'm hoping we get all the filler moments from this point to that so that we get to the finale and we know where everything, everything that's happened in the fairy tale world. Maybe not all the details, but all the major points to get us to that birth. And that'll get us to a place where we can accept the people's memories coming back or the world's merging as right. well. Now, I'm not sure what effects Henry's coma will have in Storybrooke, but I hope Emma will start to believe and that her belief will start to maybe put some holes in that curse. Yeah, I'm guessing, exactly. I'm guessing more than a few characters could possibly end up back in the in the world they know or the, the fairy tale world, and maybe we'll start seeing a two-pronged attack against the curse. Emma and the townsfolks in Storybrooke and those who get transported back to the fairy tale world on their side all trying to defeat the queen or Regina depending on where they're at that's kind of my crackpot theory for this week is that maybe yeah. instead of the two worlds coming together that a hole breaks up in the curse and some people are just boop, popped out of Storybrooke and back into the fantasy or fairy tale world and then they retain all their memories from Storybrooke and the fairy tale world so they can fight against Regina and ultimately destroy the curse so they'll remember that they have to destroy this curse. Well, and you might also have a situation where some of them might not want to go back to the fairy tale world. That's true. Like you may have a situation where some might want to get back to where they are. That that's a good idea. That they might be trying to fight to get back to Storybrooke. That's cool. I like that idea too. Because especially for the characters that aren't necessarily human in the fairy tale world or were transformed from humans into something, I could see them not wanting to go back. Or maybe like the Mad Hatter's daughter, who's she has new parents in Storybrooke, and so maybe they want to get back to Storybrooke because they they were parents there and they're not. You know, they're they're just the the neighbors. In, in in the fairy tale world so that there could be driving forces to get them to go back to, to one side or the other or cindy might not want to go back because he's trapped in a mirror that's true as well so there's some interesting things that could happen there's also the possibility that we could get some sort of a lost reset 
where things that happen in the finale reset the world or the curse and only Emma or maybe Henry remembers. And the entire second season is spent trying to make the others remember what has happened in the last year. That's that's kind of out there, but it's a, a definite possibility with this show. Yeah. Regardless of which way they go, the finale should be epic. And I'm eagerly awaiting the end of this amazing first season of this great new show. Me too. So, I mean, there's not much more I can say other than just randomly throwing out theories that pop in my head. But really, I mean, I I think we're just going to have to wait till next week when we we get to see what they actually do. Well, I think it's better leaving those to be reserved next week when we have the whole picture to look at. Yeah. And know where we end things. And then we really got, we could get a good jumping point to the future. Absolutely. So with that, we're going to move on to a show that is really in need of a big episode. I think it's on its way, but I just don't know if it's enough to boost us through another season. I'm not sure. So we're going to real quickly go through this because I really want to get to Castle, but we have to discuss it because we've pretty much told you guys we are. Yeah, we've got, we don't want to really break promises around here. So let's talk about the Bones episode, The Suit on the Set. <laughs> The crew heads out to L.A. to work on a film called Bones of Contention, which is based on Brennan's most recent book. When Brennan finds out that the film lacks authenticity, she intervenes to bring it up to snuff. But when a prop body turns out to be an actual murder victim, the team must stop working on the film and work the case instead. Booth is also offered a job. This week's episode of Bones seemed to start out strong as we got a very honest spoof of Hollywood, taking a concept such as Brennan's book based on her life and blowing it out of proportion into a crazed action movie that featured a Jeffersonian lab with a monorail. The name of the Jeffersonian being replaced by the acronym WISC and Booth's movie counterpart having the word kooky on his belt buckle instead of cocky. There were also more inaccurate things than that, as Bones got really upset during the filming of a scene about the terrible dialogue and how rough the actors were being in their examination of a murder victim's remains, much like we've been complaining about the show over the past couple weeks. But what made Brennan really want to slap herself upside the forehead was the irony of the movie's scientific consultant being none other than Dr. Douglas Fillmore, the pushover forensic podiatrist who appeared in an episode during the second half of season six. Honestly, this was a character that I enjoyed seeing return to the show because Dr. Fillmore felt so much more fresh compared to the supporting characters that we see every week. And I love how they brought back the joke about his arm going dead whenever Bose discredits his work, as well as developing the characters in ways that were impolite for Canadians, like Fillmore going a little mad scientist and competing with Brennan as he showed off what Hodgins called his Robocop gear to examine the ground where this week's murder victim was killed. I also enjoyed Hodgins' movie counterpart in this episode. He filled the rotating intern role really well this week. And how he fit into the story was quite accurate. Because there are a lot of people who originally had a science background or a different career that end up breaking into the entertainment industry. Almost like someone involved with our podcast, the one, the only, Nico. Again, despite these few bright lights of the episode, I still felt like they were just simply going through the motions with all the characters that we see every week. I mean, it just seems like things are too perfect for everybody. And with the cab being in the vampire grindhouse film, I knew I was supposed to laugh, but I only found it as a desperate attempt to once again give Cab's character something to do. 
As for the mystery, it almost felt just as bland, because I knew the killer was the female gardener, because soon as she appeared on screen, just based on her personality. Also, I might be looking into this a little too much, but Bones wanting to solve this mystery under the pretense of always wanting to get a movie made out of her books felt very out of character. I would get where she would be mad about the scientific inaccuracies, but if I remember right from her last trip out to LA, Brendan didn't really care about the entertainment industry side of things. She just more or less wrote the books as a hobby, and accepted the money she made from the books as an extra source of income on top of her job at the Jeffersonian. Really, the only thing I could latch onto with the characters that make up the main cast this week was Booth looking at the possibility of getting a security job at the movie studio, thinking that it would be better for his family, because this set up the beginnings of a needed exit strategy for the show. And honestly, with this side plot taking place, next week's episode really should be the series finale. With the outcome of what's supposed to be an intense face-off with the uh, hacker Christopher Pallads, making Bones and Booth realize they should call it quits on performing federal murder investigations. Because I have a feeling that with this show going to season 8, we might want to fire a missile to blow up this show's supporting cast, like at the end of the trailer for the movie based on Brennan's book. So with that, I'm going to pass things on to you, Nico, on this probably another mediocre episode of Bones. Just going through the motions is being nice for the show, Dan. Come on, come out and say what we're both thinking. This show is crap. This week was better than the previous few, but that is like saying chlamydia is better than gonorrhea. They both hurt when you pee. All the cutesy little things they did with the names of characters in the movie to the name of the murder victim being Hanson something or another, like the creator of the show Hart Hanson, to naming the Bones character in the movie Kathy Reichs, the real author of the Bones books, were all pathetic. Any more self-ego stroking and it would have been a form of masturbation. Come on. This was ridiculous. The only redeeming qualities of the entire episode was the gloriously ridiculous trailer for the movie, the mother sucker movie that Cam starred in as an early medical student, and the actor turned intern this week. Oh, I guess I enjoyed the return of the podiatrist Dr. Fillmore as well, but really, these things were such a small part of the episode that it hardly made up for the crap we did have to deal with. Plus, the whole booth wanting to leave the FBI and become a glorified security guard pissed me off. Taking the cushy job for money and fame is not Sealy Booth's M.O. If he had taken the job, I would have hoped he'd be killed in the finale to rid us of all his shame. Seriously, I wish Fox had canceled this show and left us maybe Alcatraz at, at this point. Next week's finale oh. is, is probably the only redeeming value of all the episodes since the hiatus. But after that, I'm most likely done. I just can't handle this show anymore. Yeah, I mean... They're only saving grace here. They've got to do something huge in this next episode to save it. I think even the hacker at this point can't keep me coming back for next year. Okay. I, I think I'm just done. Okay. I think I've gotten to that ER point where... Because, I mean, I feel like I have to at least write it out next week just because I feel like I've wasted my time. Oh, yeah. I'm going to watch next the show. week. Don't, yeah. don't get me wrong. I'm going to watch next week. I, I'll, I'll give it that much, especially because I know the character is returning and it was a good... Yeah first appearance by this character but even if they wow me it's going to be hard for me to come back much like i left 
I stopped watching ER entirely after Carter left. Noah Wiley left the show. Oh, I understand that. And I, I don't feel like I missed anything. I really don't in that. So at this point, I think they've jumped the shark, and I don't think I'll miss anything by not watching the last season because I don't even think it's going to make it through the entire last season. Maybe there are enough diehard Bones fans, which I used to be, enough diehard Bones fans that will watch it regardless of how bad it gets just to see the end of the series. But they shouldn't go more than 13 episodes. That's I, I, what this season should have been. That's what next season should be at most. Well, I hope I hope Fox does that, the 13 yeah. episodes, because this, this is ridiculous. The other thing with next week's episode, even if they do something at Ted's, it sounds like, like Pallant's going to kidnap the baby, and that sounds ridiculous. Yeah, it does. Like, what? Like, if, the, if really, if he wants to do something bad, like kidnap one of the main cast characters. Yeah. Or kill them. Right, we mentioned that last week, that a couple good deaths would be what this show needed. And you even said it, you know, get rid of some of the supporting cast that has outlived its usefulness. I mean, yeah, I liked these characters in the early part of this series, but sometimes supporting cast need to be killed off or need to evolve to the point where they leave the show or something happens. There's no drama in that lab anymore. Right. Because earlier on, you know, we had Zach's betrayal. Yes. Which was a big thing. And you got a lot out of that. Then you had Angela and Hodgins breaking up. You had things going on in the lab that made complications. And now it's just, there's nothing wrong. Everything's perfect. And it's just, look. Yeah. It's a mess. So with that, we got to move on to talking about a show that seems to take everything Bones has done wrong and just make it look right and really show us just how bad Bones has gotten. Again, this episode did make a move that makes me nervous that we're going to go into a territory where we might get to this going through the motions. Again, I hope not because the actor behind this show is Nathan Fillon, and I don't think I could ever get tired of watching him. So we're going to talk now about the Castle episode, always. Becca is on the hunt for the man who shot her, which puts Castle in a precarious position. Soon everything will be out in the open, and nothing will be the same for the 12th Precinct. The highly anticipated fourth season finale for Castle started out on an extremely high note, with Alexis ready to graduate from high school as a valid Victorian, and Castle actually landing a date with Beckett. But from here, things went a bit sideways, because all the shocking events of the third season finale came back to haunt everyone at the 12th Precinct, because this week's murder victim was connected to a recent break-in at Captain Montgomery's house, putting Beckett back on the trail of the sniper who shot her at Montgomery's funeral. And unlike the third season finale, which relied heavily on huge emotional character moments, what carried us through this episode was just flat-out intense police investigation to convey Beckett becoming increasingly absorbed into her obsession with catching the man who shot her, which ended up not just causing friction with her at Castle, but with Ryan and Esposito as well. From here in a decision that I was surprised wasn't motivated by a scene with his mother, Castle decides that Beckett has gone too far with trying to catch the sniper, and decides to tell her about his relationship with the deep throat guy who promised Castle Beckett would stay safe as long as she didn't continue her mother's murder investigation. Although more is revealed in this scene than that, as Beckett and Castle stop talking in fun little flirtations and metaphors to put all of their feelings on the table, from Beckett lying about hearing Castle he loved her after being shot. To Castle saying that every morning he brings her coffee just to see the smile on her face. It just did an outstanding performance from our boy Nathan Fillon and Stadia Caddick that probably has solidified their place as one of the best TV couples in television histories. 
Honestly, this seed was shipper, quote, heaven. I did an excellent job of covering every step of Castle of Beckett's blooming romance over the past four years. Also, the writers could have easily ended this scene with Castle and Beckett hooking up, but they did what Nico and I thought was vital to this season's success. Make Beckett be getting a romance with Castle her decision by turning down his profession of love to continue solving her mother's case, leaving a heartbroken Castle no choice but to end their partnership because he can't stand by and watch the woman he loves throw her life away. From here, Beckett returns to the precinct, telling Ryan and Esposito that Castle is off the case, which immediately makes Ryan somewhat panic and think they should tell Gates what's going on. But Beckett and Esposito, who are now driven by payback, decide to head after the sniper on their own. Now, remember how I said that we thought it was vital to the season's success that Beckett hooking up with Castle needed to be her own decision? Well, I thought the writers took this one impressive step farther, because going half-cocked after the sniper results in Esposito being knocked out fairly easily, and Beckett being left hanging off the ledge. On that note, I love the decision to have Beckett start yelling for Castle when Kate realized she could not get back on the rooftop, because it immediately showed that she knew she made the wrong decision for going after the sniper. Again, it isn't Castle who shows up to Beckett's rescue. It's Ryan, who unfortunately brought Captain Gates with him. And even though I can't stand Gates as a character, I get why she made the shocking decision to suspend Beckett and Esposito from the force, since you really can't have cops running around half-cocked throughout the city. Plus, there's got to be some extreme liability issues. At the same time, I also understand why Ryan went to Gates, because with him having a wife at home, he probably didn't want to get fired. And on top of that, he was concerned about his partner's safety, since they are like family to him. But sadly, the family dynamic seems like it's hit a brick wall, because Esposito gives Ryan the cold shoulder as he tries to explain his actions. As I said on our last episode, I thought things for this finale would end being bittersweet. So with the friendship between Ryan and Esposito now broken, and Beckett resigning from the force, covering the bitter part of the ending, we were left needing the sweet, which was led into nicely with a really well-written graduation speech from Alexis. And what was this sweet moment, do you ask? Something that brought a huge smile to the chipper's faces. A rain-soaked Beckett showing up at Castle's apartment to kiss him. And from there, they continued to sleep together. But just as we began to celebrate, the scene cuts to the Deep Throat guy's office, where the sniper shows up to most likely kill him, meaning that the protection Castle was promised is off, and the bad guys behind the conspiracy are going to be coming after Beckett. In ending my side of the discussion, I'm going to throw a few theories out there about next season for Nico and I to discuss. First off, I'm wondering if Beckett being resigned from the force means that we are going to see the opening of the Richard Castle Private Detective Agency, because they probably can't continue Castle and Beckett's arrangement at the precinct, even if Beckett gets her job back, based on them being in a romantic relationship. I was was also thinking that once they work things out, Ryan and Esposito could be hired to be a part of the agency. Or maybe they just stay on the force with them working the same cases as Castle and Beckett. Kind of like what they do with Sean and Gus did Jules and Lassie on Psych. Lastly, I think the Deep Throat guy was a senator or someone high up in the government. Meaning that his death probably gets on the radar of Castle's father or a friend of his at the CIA. And one of them shows up to protect Castle because they found out he was communicating with the Deep Throat guy. Propping Castle to become obsessed with why his father left so many years ago. And it's going to be up to Beckett to prevent Castle's obsession from getting him killed, much like Castle tried to do with her in this episode and season. So, with that, it's time to hear something that I've really been looking forward to since Monday night Nico's thoughts on this extremely well done fourth season finale of Castle. I loved this episode of Castle. It gave us everything we were hoping for and nearly everything we suspected that we would get. 
And Dan, you did a good job of pointing out all the best parts of this episode. So really, yeah. what's there left for me to say? No, I, I really enjoyed the episode, the feel of this episode. The pacing was perfect to the yeah. point that when the scene with Castle and Beckett happened in his apartment at the end, I was surprised that the episode was nearly over. So, you know, everything seemed to work perfectly. And really, that 42 minutes went by really fast. Oh, yeah. And and probably because I was loving every minute of it. But, you know, I, I, I don't really have much to say about the specific little points of everything. It, it works so well together. I just think I can say as a whole, it was exactly what I was looking for in, in this finale. So rather than recap all my favorite points, I think it's just time to jump into some of your theories. Yeah. Because I, I like those theories. And I agree that with Castle and Beckett together now, Beckett off the force at least for the time being the partnership in its current incarnation is done it's got to be done there's just no way they can work it now where they go from here could go a few different ways but even if beckett rejoins the nypd castle would be unable to continue being her partner at the precinct because of their relationship now yeah so does that mean they will work together with some sort of private investigative agency maybe I think that could be fun for a few episodes, but Beckett is a homicide detective, and she'll only be happy doing that. So it's unlikely that this would last very long, because I doubt the NYPD would use many consulting detectives since they employ so many on their normal payroll. So I don't foresee Beckett being a consulting detective with Castle as her partner for the NYPD. I do foresee her returning to the force or maybe even jumping to the FBI major crimes division. And there she could team up with the guys from the 12th precinct on an FBI NYPD task force that also somehow brings Castle into the mix as a consultant. You know, somehow they'll work that out. Yeah, I think that's a possibility. And it would be really cool. Beckett as an FBI agent. Yeah, Yeah, that would be interesting. And they would take her, too, because she is, you know, has a great case-closing ratio. She's got the skills. And they would move her right into major crimes. She'd have to go to the academy and all that fun stuff just because being an FBI agent, everybody has to go through that. But I think that it would be easy for her to pick it right up and be an integral member of the FBI. That would be kind of cool. And she's got connections within the FBI, too. That's true as well. And Homeland Security and a bunch of things. So she, yeah. they would definitely. Plus the CIA owes them. Yeah. The, the, the only trick is I would just how Castle is going to fit into all this. I think she's going to take them wherever she goes. The NYPD, it might be closed off. Right. But anywhere else, she'll, he'll come in as just an asset that is because he, he didn't get paid by the nypd so no. he could you know the f it's not a matter of oh you have to pay him as a consultant he just consults with me yeah <laughs> if you want me you got to bring he's coming with you know that sort of thing so i think I well think you could even look at their case ratio it's say, yeah, look yeah you know look at the at the cases i've worked with him we have a 90 percent clear rate yeah when, when we're not working together, it drops to like 75. Right. You know, or whatever it is. I also think maybe the connection that is made with the senator, and if, if they actually do kill him, I, which I, I believe they will as well as you yeah. did, or whoever the deep throat guy w- turns out to be, you know, high up in, in the government, or maybe he was a former spy or something of that nature, that's going to bring Castle and Beckett to the attention of the FBI and makes them assets in their investigation. Maybe they'll even suspect them for a moment yeah but i i don't see that going more than 
a quarter of an episode or a half an episode. And that could get them back in the game because the FBI realizes, hey, these guys have a lot of inside knowledge on what's going on here, and they're going to come after Beckett anyway. So she may jump in with the FBI, and they might be uh, private investigators for that time period. And then finally the NYPD says, hey, we want you back, whatever it is. Or maybe would be awesome is Gates is somehow implicated or somehow loses her job and the new guy wants Beckett back. He's yeah. like, I don't care what happened between you and Gates. Gates is, is terrible. She was IA. She was out to get you from the beginning as far as I'm concerned. I want you back. And if that means Castle has to be here, then hey, I'm okay with that. Just don't let your personal lives get in the way. Or, and, or, the, or the government steps in, you know, or something like that. Yeah, or they or the mayor, yeah, mayor, governor, ev- everybody steps in and tells the NYPD, "Hey, <laughs> this is going to happen, and if you don't like it, <laughs> we can find somewhere else for you to be." Yeah, and maybe Castle's long lost father returns and gets him in in on the v- investigation. Maybe not with the NYPD, but if there's an FBI task force since a senator was killed or whatever he is, we're going to just call him a senator because that makes sense at this point. Yeah. You know, and and so the FBI or somehow FBI, CIA, National or Homeland Security, they're all working together in a task force, and they bring in Castle, and Castle's dad somehow gets Castle and Beckett onto that because he knows they're going to continue on this, and and maybe they'll be a little more protected if they're working in that FBI thing. These are all, you know, obviously right. just spitballing right now, but these are kind of the fun things about Castle after a finale is you can. You can start coming up with these wild theories on where it could go because it could go anywhere. Yeah, right now it really can. With everybody, with all the characters. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we could see Ryan next season with a totally new partner. And something happens with that. Yeah, and maybe maybe Javier has to leave the NYPD or he decides to leave because he's being mistreated or when he comes back from suspension, Gates is all over him and like treating him like dirt and he just can't take it anymore and he's like I'm going somewhere where I can do some good and maybe he joins you know, he goes back to the military or he goes, you know, some if he goes to the military, I don't see him being a part of the show and I don't yeah. want that yeah, to yeah. end. So if he goes FBI or Homeland Security or something like that, that could be cool because then he'd he'd be in on a bunch of these cases, especially if they go to a task force sort of thing. So we, it, we could get the whole group, Ryan being the NYPD, Javier being NSA or Homeland Security, Castle and Beckett working with the FBI and all of them on a task force. That would be kind of cool. But I just don't know if that's going to be sustainable. Well, Obviously, I think they're doing something to mix it up. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to avoid a pitfall that Bones did by hooking up Bones and Booth. Right. Because, the, yes, Castle and Beckett are together, but there's still a ton of complications to deal with. Right. Like, where are they going to be working? How are they going to keep doing what they're going to be doing? Andrew W. Marlowe came out in an interview and said, we are still going to get the banter. We're still going to get the mystery solving between Beckett and Castle. Right. And the premiere episode is going to take place the next morning. Okay. After that goes down. So... I, I don't know how they're going to explain what Beckett and Castle are going to do and how they get their jobs back that quickly, but that's what's going down. Yeah, I, I don't know where they're going to go. All I know for sure is that things are not going to be the same. Yes. And, I, and I'm okay with that in this show because the way they did it worked perfectly. I thought it was very well done. I don't want it to get stale, but this show seems to be more than capable of avoid, avoiding the pitfalls other series have fallen into. Because like we just said, Castle is not Bones. Yeah. And I'm just really super excited about that, especially now that I know it's going to be immediately after this episode. It's going to be the next day. That's going to be a lot of fun. 
Well, and they this episode kind of warned us with Alexis's speech and her going off to college. Things aren't going to be the same next season. You know, things aren't going to be the same with her. Things aren't going to be the same with Castle and, and Beckett as well. And so that's what happened at the end of this episode. Because that's where we're going to go. And that's where it has to go to sustain itself. Plus, if you could get rid of Captain Gates in that swoop without killing her off or having to do something like that, I'm good with that as well. Yeah. But, yeah. Excellent episode. Excellent. I hope we get everybody back next season. I'm pretty sure we are. I don't see why they wouldn't. Yeah, I, I don't see why they'd get rid of any of these guys. The The four main characters are so solid. The Alexis Laney and Martha characters, but they really enhance every episode that they're in. So getting rid of any of these w- would be a mistake. It's not to the point where they're detrimental, like maybe the Hodgins, Angela, Daisy, all the yeah. interns. Sometimes sweets when he's acting like an idiot, they're detrimental to the episodes. I don't think we're anywhere near that in Castle. So no. right now, they they should be back for this season. Well, and it would be incredibly gutsy for a police procedural show to mix it up or change the location of the mystery solving. Mm-hmm. It'd be it would be interesting to make me excited to watch every week. Yeah, you know, it's not to get the same old same old every time. Hey, you know, and if they're the plan is to go longer than five years, and this is a great way to put more fuel in the tank, I guess. Excellent job on everyone's part in the episode. Great season finale. I'm hoping the other ones we get can live up to it. So with that, I think it's time to move on to talking about ABC's more comedic side with our discussion of the Modern Family episode titled Disneyland. During a family trip to Disneyland, Phil tries to go on a lot of big, fast rides with Luke, but ends up feeling a little bit green around the gills. The family runs into Haley's old boyfriend, Dylan, much to Claire's shock. Lily starts running a lot, and Cam and Mitch try to adapt to her new pension. My modern family memory for this week would have to be all of Jay's great sarcastic one-liners he had throughout the family's trip to Disneyland. I can't necessarily pinpoint which comment was the best, but they did a nice job of adding to the humor that came from Phil having a hard time riding roller coasters, Cabin Mitchell putting Lily on a leash, and Gloria wearing high heels to Disneyland. I also thought that Jay's hilarious talking head scenes where he described a fight that he had with his ex-wife on the day he took Mitchell and Claire to Disneyland as kids paid off nicely with us seeing what a great father he is and how greatly he was rewarded for being just that. So with that, I'll pass things on to you, Nico, with your modern family memory. My modern family memory is definitely Luke being super excited about being tall enough to ride all the rides at Disneyland and how excited Phil was until he realized that he was getting a little too old for the rides himself. I thought Luke's line about all the things he'd do for Phil to make sure they still had fun even when he's too old and in a wheelchair, that was pretty great too. All in all, a fairly good episode that hit us with good stuff from virtually every character. Unfortunately, Manny and the stock market didn't really work this week for me, but everyone else was good, especially Jay. You're right. A lot of his scenes were great, and I love when he was telling Gloria, are you wearing those shoes? You're going to be hurting all day. I will not. You know, and then, of course, he's right. Yeah, that was just, it was a good payoff. Yes, it was. All of his story paid off really well throughout the whole episode, I thought. So, kudos to this Disneyland trip episode. I think Modern Family does a good job with the trip episodes yes very much so. they have a lot to work with a lot to do and they did an excellent job so kudos to them on that and i'm looking forward to the season finale which i heard may get a little interesting for mitchell and cam so 
So with that, it's time to move on to another comedic show that we get a kick out of. Get all sorts of wedding drama involved with that. The Big Bang Theory with the episode entitled The Countdown Reflection. All started with the Big Bang. As Howard awaits Blastoff, he recounts how the gang threw together a last-minute wedding for him and Bernadette. My favorite comedic moment from this season finale of The Big Bang Theory would have to be a toss-up between Coward and his fellow astronauts awaiting launch, especially when it came to the Fruit Loops references, get Amy wanting to be the center of everything, even though it was Howard and Bernadette's wedding day. Also, I thought Howard and Bernadette's actual wedding ceremony was really well done, because the sermons that each of the main characters gave as internet-ordained ministers were really well-written from a comedic standpoint. By the way, Sheldon grabbing Amy's hand as Howard went into space was a huge development for his character. And I'm thinking for next season, it's going to be about Sheldon having to contend with feelings. So with that, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's season finale of The Big Bang Theory? Yeah, my favorite comedic moment was definitely the launch sequence scenes with the astronauts. These were just great, and the two other astronauts were hilarious. However, Chuck Lorre's favorite scene from the episode was my second favorite part of the episode, and that was everyone sitting around watching the launch and then holding hands. That was a good touch, and I do think you're right. Next season is going to be about Sheldon and Amy and their evolving relationship, and I do think he's going to have to start contending with feelings, something he's never really had to deal with. That's going to be cool. Yeah, it's going to be great stuff, and we'll see what's going on with Penny and Leonard, too. There, there might be another wedding in store for us with this show in the future. I think that's going to be like one of those ending of the series okay. events. That makes sense. I go with that. But a uh, great job on everyone's part with the Big Bang Theory finale, and uh, the Russian guy, the Russian astronaut, was great. Yeah. So with that, we're going to move on to talking about an episode of Community that I could see being a disappointment to some people. I thought it set up this epic season finale that we're going to have next week. That's 90 minutes really well with an event that I'm going to call the Battle for Greendale. But before we get into discussing that next week, let's talk about this week's episode, the titled Curriculum Unavailable. When Abed becomes convinced that there's a conspiracy and Deed Pelton is an imposter, he is required to see a therapist or risk being sent to jail. Normally, I hate clip episodes, but I have to give Community credit for giving us a clip episode with a twist. Because my favorite comedic moment was the scene where the study group reenacted classic moments from this show in a mental institution after the fake psychiatrist hired by Chang tried to convince the group that Greendale, as in the community college, didn't exist anymore. Can I totally expect these types of mind games from a PC? If you catch the reference I gave there. Also, I got a good laugh from the presentation of Troy and Ahmed in the morning nights, where our favorite pair of buddies called both Jeff and Annie in the middle of the night to be guests, much to their annoyance. So with that, I'm going to pass things out to you, Nico, with your community chuckle for the week. My community chuckle would also have to be the scene in the Mental Institute where they're acting out all my favorite episodes from seasons past. But also when they realized that they had been duped and John Hodgman tried to convince them of a bunch of other scenarios and Troy kept fake realizing things, that was all great stuff. Yes, great episode. Great setup for this epic battle for Greendale against Chang. I can't wait to see where that goes. Yeah, it's going to be good. All right, so with that, we're going to talk about Another great penultimate setup episode 
that had me excited and kind of continued this trend the show's had with this week and last week over giving an origin story to its two main characters. So let's talk about the person of interest episode, No Good Deed. Finch finds a lot in common with their newest number, who has run afoul of the government. Meanwhile, Reese learns about Finch's past. This week's episode started out as a standard person of interest case, which revolved around Reese and Finch trying to protect an average businessman. But with this show, we should know better by now that nothing is ever just standard. Guys, this case hit very close to home for Finch. Because it was discovered that the businessman, Carol Peck, is actually a security analysis for the NSA, who had knowingly discovered the existence of the machine, marking himself for death at the hands of the government. Now, what was interesting about this plot development, from a writing standpoint, was that it showed persons of interest's versatility when it comes to creating suspense. I mean, sometimes we're put on the edge of our seats due to a crazy plot twist, the bad guys like Elias getting the upper hand, or our uncertainty got a character's past. Now, what was really unique for this show in this episode was a sense of hopelessness when it came to resolving this week's crisis, with Reese and Finch having to help the person of interest while not making direct contact in fear of exposing themselves to the government. Unfortunately, things become so out of hand with Reese trying to indirectly protect the NSA analysts, it even threatens the safety of Fusco and Carter leaving Finch no other choice but to take the incredible risk of telling Peck he created the machine, because it means of persuading the guy to stop asking the questions that would only get him killed. Again, some of you watching this episode might have thought Finch didn't consider all of his options when coming forward with this information to Peck, especially when it led to the woman from the NSA discovering that Finch created the machine. But I thought the reasoning behind this was explained beautifully through the flashbacks of this episode. And Reese discovering Finch's former fiance, who thinks that her beloved Harold is dead. Oh, and Finch telling Reese that he was glad to have at least four happy years with the woman he loved was just heartbreaking. But at the same time, really solidified the partnership between the two men, because they both shared the experience of love and loss. Also, might I just add that the flashbacks were almost equally as intense as the present-day storyline, because I kept bracing myself for the moment where Finch's former business partner was going to get killed, because I figured that once he tried to install the back door into the machine, it was going to take out the partner in self-defense. In this episode, the flashback ended before we saw those events unfold, but I still believe the machine killed him. But I think the back door he installed might be the very thing that saves Reese and Finch's life in a future episode, or potentially next week. On that note, I'm going to end my side of the discussion by saying that the only predictions I really have for the season finale is that the investigating Carter was doing in this episode indicated that she and Fusco are either going to find out that they both are working for Reese or Carter is going to blow the whistle on Fusco for working with HR, not knowing that he's doing it to help Reese. At the same time, I'm going to throw out the prediction that when this HR business gets the fan next week, the NSA is going to turn the machine against Reese and Finch, putting them at the mercy of all the enemies they've accumulated throughout the season. But beyond that, I've got nothing more to say that we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. So with that, I'm going to pass things out to you, Nico, with your thoughts on this pretty solid episode of Person of Interest. Yeah, I really enjoyed this episode of Person of Interest. It gave us some more great backstory on our two boys, but especially Finch this week. Not only did we learn that he had a love of his life, but that she is still alive, but thinks him dead. That sucks. Yeah. But it fits with Finch's personality so well. And because both Finch and Reese have lost their loves, this bonds them even more as each understands his counterpart's pain. Yeah. It was a great idea on the writer's part to do this because it gives them some more common ground. 
not just their mission, but the fact that they've both lost something to get to the point where they do this. So that was kind of cool. As for your theories, I want to tackle the last one first because I see a small flaw in your logic that I think we should talk about. That's fine. You say that after Reach clear up this HR issue, which I agree that I, I think they're going to do soon, if not completely in the finale, then definitely by early next season. But after that, you think that the NSA is going to turn the machine against Reese and Finch. This is where I have issue. You see, the way the machine works is that it runs independently with no human input. And the people who know about the machine really have no control over it, and neither does Finch. The machine recognizes terrorist attacks on on its own or other intel that people need to know and then randomly inserts the necessary information into previously created reports with no way of being traced back to the machine. This is how Harold made the device so that it could not be abused or turned against the U.S. That is also why he said they should not install that back door because any vulnerability is an absolute vulnerability. So you see, the NSA can no more turn the machine against Reese or Finch than I could. So I... Yeah, I was more like, that was what the, the preview said okay. was going to happen the episode. So I just kind of wrote that as like, you know, to bait people to get excited for next week's episode. I think that them doing that, I think they'll stay within their, their own created rules for it. Right. But I think they're trying to make us think that it's going to turn on them. Now, if the machine perceived Reese or Finch to do something that could be considered terrorist activity against the U.S., then yeah, the machine would slip their names, whereabouts, and other necessary information to stop them into an intel report, and the CIA, FBI, Homeland Security, and all the other three-letter agencies would be after them. And I could foresee that as a possible maybe season four story arc. Okay. But not this early, you know? And maybe, maybe. Is it possible, I mean, is it possible that the NSA could either tamper with it or try to trick it into doing that? And then it backfires on them? There's always that possibility, but I think that because it's so independent and really only, they said seven and Finch makes eight right. people knew about it and some of them are already dead, the number of people who know about it and could actually do that are very very small and so i don't know that they could actually manipulate it or that the machine would not know it's being attempted to be manipulated so i'm not really sure how that's gonna work okay now as for fusco and carter i think carter will get close to turning in fusco before maybe reese intervenes and tells her that he is working for reese and but i don't think he will tell fusco I think they're going to keep Carter's involvement quiet. And I think he'll keep Fusco, like I said, pretty much in the dark until they can fully take down HR so that Carter can't get jammed up if Fusco gets caught or flips on them all. But I do see Carter figuring it out. So I think she's going to realize that Fusco is an asset to them and is being used as such. And maybe she can trust him a little bit more than she does. But because of that one scene where she found out he's dirty, but she, he still stayed and kept with her and had her back. I think she's kind of really torn on where he stands. Right. And I think once Reese tells him he's working with me, for me, taking down HR, then she's going to trust him much more. Maybe not fully because he is, you know, right. he was a corrupt cop, but I think she'll trust him more. And that's going to be cool. Well, and, and you have to kind of keep that idea 
that they don't trust him fully to give Fusco's character something to do, a development. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he's going to be tempted to turn against Reese. I think that that's always going to be there for a while until he finally makes the decision that he's going to be clean and he's going to be a good cop again. And he wants, he'll do anything to get there, you know, for Reese. And once they take down HR, he's going to, he's going to go to Reese and be like, Hey, I'll, I still want to work with you, but I can't be dirty. Right. And that'll be, that'll be a great move for Fusco. I can see bad guys using his kid against him, though, with Fusco. They'll try, yeah. I think. They'll, they'll try to do that, much like they tried to do it against Carter. But I think that's where Reese and Carter and Finch are all going to jump in right. and say, hey, look, you can, you can do this. We'll be there. We'll get, we got your back, and we know you want to be clean, so we'll let you be clean. So yeah, I think it's yeah. gonna be. I think it's gonna be a great development for his character going forward the next couple seasons. I agree with you. Um, they really put a lot of care into their characters on this show. They really do a good job giving them things to do. Yeah, absolutely. And really, I can't wait for the the finale, especially yeah. since one of one of our favorite geek, my favorite geek crushes. Well, not not Felicia Day, but almost yeah. as great. Amy Acker guest stars in the finale, so that'll be a lot of fun. And I think she's gonna be a good person of interest. Well, and I heard that she's going to be back next season, too. Yeah, you know, I think she's going to become quite aware of what they're doing because Reese and her get almost uh, trapped together in some sort of situation where they can't get out. And so she's going to find out more and more about what they're doing, and maybe she's going to become an ally for next season. It looks like they get cornered or something. Yeah. By, like, HR guys or somebody comes after Reese, then they're cornered. So, yeah. That's that's a good call there, too. Well, I think that pretty much settles it. I mean, we're just going to have to wait and see what we get next week to really be able to make some good predictions. Yep. All right. Well, that's good stuff. And maybe we'll get some answers on what happened to Reese's partner. I mean, Fitch's partner. I feel like that information is going to be coming out soon. Yeah, I almost felt like we were going to get it this episode, like you kind of mentioned. But it didn't happen. So I think they're holding that out for the finale, maybe. It seems like a finale thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a shocker thing. So with that, we're going to talk about a finale of a show that, oh my gosh, if you want a finale of a show, watch this episode, because it's amazing. This show blows my mind every week, does an excellent job, and I just can't wait to praise it some more with our discussion on the Fringe season finale, Brave New World Part 2. The Fringe team is pushed to the brink as they try to save every living person from the schemes of William Bell. This season finale for Fringe was probably the best of the series. Because there was barely anything to really review in this episode, but a ton of moments to just simply astound and marvel at. Which culminated all of the ongoing plot threads together in an emotionally impactful manner. In fact, this episode felt like watching a fireworks show with all sorts of oohs and ahs along the way. First off, I loved it how the creators of the show finally took the kid gloves off and allowed Olivia to really let loose with her telekinetic abilities by stopping the bullets that Bell's henchwoman fired at September in midair and threw them back at her, effectively saving September. Not only was this impressive visually, it set up all the scenes we've had with September throughout the season, it was a nice catalyst to give us a story explaining just how far Olivia has come as a character over the past four seasons, through her just having people around that care about her. And the moments where both Peter and surprisingly Nina, both in their own way, explained to Olivia she was not alone, even made me as an audience member feel the love that they were expressing inside. 
In addition, all of these seeds really came together into a nice head, when Peter and Olivia had to work together to make it on board Belle's ship. Because not only did this act solidify the idea that Olivia's power comes from love, but it maintained this season's general theme of both universes needing to work together to stop a common threat. Speaking of that common threat, the way Fringe's writers retconned things to motivate William Bell's reasoning behind wanting to create his own universe made much sense, since curing cancer is something that many people want to do. But I think the Cortexafan Bell was injecting himself with to slow his cancer down made him crazy enough to go through with Walter's idea to create a universe within his own image. By the way, Walter being the one who came up with the idea of making a universe within his own image as a means of trying to save Peter, and using that as the reason he cut out parts of his brain was just genius on the writer's part, because it set things up perfectly for the triumphant moment where Walter would finally make up for the sins of his past. However, before we get to that incredibly profound moment for this series, I first have to mention the verbal battle of wills that took place in this episode between John Noble playing Walter and Leonard Nimoy playing Dr. Bell. Because it just sent chills down my spine. Like I was watching Kirk betray Spock. And when everything erupted with Peter and Olivia entering the room guns loaded, I was at the edge of my seat. Especially at the triumphant moment where Walter atoned for the sins of his past. Although this moment wasn't triumphant, like I always thought it would be, it was actually quite horrific. Because Walter had to shoot Olivia in the head to stop the collapsing of both universes. Honestly, this was an event that was incredibly brutal for the show, but extremely necessary for the development of Walter's character, because it not only showed he atoned for his mistakes from the past by saving both universes, but it showed that he had learned from them as well, since he was willing to risk his relationship with his son on the hunch that the Cortexafan in Olivia's system would heal the bullet wound in her head. Also through this whole season, I know we were all thinking in the back of our minds that Olivia was going to survive this encounter, since we had seen the future. But regardless of this knowledge, I was just left simply floored from when Walter shot Olivia to when we ultimately knew she was going to live. Really, when it comes to being emotionally sucked into a TV show, this scene has got to be marked as one of the best, since the sheer magnitude of Walter slapping Peter hit me like an emotional ton of bricks. That from here on out, the writers had me right there with two of my favorite characters on television, hoping and praying that Olivia Dunham, the character that Nico and I ironically wanted dead three years ago, would survive. Again, some people out there may argue that the writers may have killed the intensity of this scene where Olivia was shot through giving us that glimpse of the future a few episodes ago, but I think the emotions and the acting of the scene were done just so right that it really did not matter. Oh, and the payoff to Walter saving Olivia's life was just outstanding, with a great moment where Walter and Astrid, who he actually calls by the right name, share some licorice. And Olivia shares the big news that she is pregnant. On that note, I'm going to surmise, with many of the characters on the show's doubts about themselves being resolved, I think the past four seasons of the show have been about building each member of the Fringe team up towards having the emotional, or in Olivia's case, physical attributes needed for them to defeat the oncoming Observer invasion, alluded to at the end of this episode. In other words, I think the writers have been preparing their characters for war. That what would be really cool is this September's purpose on this show is to achieve the same goal. In regards to the theories I have about next season, they don't really have anything. They just more or less have a wish list of things I would like to see before the show ends. Such as season 5 starting off in the future right after the episode a few weeks ago left off. Because I think we would get some great development out of seeing Olivia's character act as a mother. Also, I'd like to return to the other side just to see how their future works out. Plus, you gotta have Lincoln on the show. 
Lastly, I think it would be really interesting if September was set up as an observer to witness his race's destruction at the hands of the French team. That went back in time somehow as a means of finding a way for both races to almost work out their differences to endure. Again, that's kind of a makeshift theory. There's probably some holes in that. But I mainly just want to see September remain an ally to the French team like he's been throughout the whole season. Because I kind of like that character. That would be interesting to at least have one observer or maybe a few who end up becoming a good guy. So with that, I'm going to leave things by saying kudos to Fridge on another season well done. As I pass things on to you, Nico, with your thoughts and maybe some of the things I missed. Because there was just a ton of stuff to cover with this episode on this excellent season finale of Fridge. Wow, what an episode. Yeah. If this had been the series finale as it so easily could have been, I would have been completely satisfied because this was a great second half of the two-part season finale. Walter V. Bell was everything we could have hoped for, and maybe even more, especially when we got that hollow projection of the universe-slash-world that Bell envisioned. That was pretty cool, if not a little Terra Nova-esque. Did you find it interesting that Bell did not want humans to survive in his new world, rather only the hybrids and the new species he created? I thought that was kind of interesting, and, you know, it was worth noting. But what I really loved was, as Dan, you described it, the verbal battle of wills between Walter and William Bell, and ultimately how Walter was able to not necessarily win the verbal battle, but was able to find a way to defeat Bell's plan. And how many of you out there were able to surmise what Walter was going to do before he did it? That would be two of us here at my house. Both my dad and I almost simultaneously said, he's going to kill Olivia. It was a great payoff scene, though. Although Bell's reaction to the foiling of his carefully laid out plans was kind of weak. There's barely any dejection at all. Bell's final moment in the story basically boils down to, oh well, that sucks. Anyway, peace out. Then he disappears, you know, in a convenient manner that seems like uh, the equivalent of a puff of smoke. I know they did discuss the the way Bell did this and how the ringing of his little ship bell transports him somehow. But for the life of me, I couldn't remember it all on Friday night. So I was like, oh, that's kind of weak. <laughs> well, they, they had to make you, we had to get out of the encounter somehow. So you oh, yeah. get in the amber later on. Yeah. On the other hand, though. I've got to say that last week they set up how they were going to save Olivia fairly well with the brain tissue regeneration experiment in the cornbread or muffin of some sort that Walter did. So we were primed to believe that she'd be okay when Walter explains that what he's going to do to her. However, for a few minutes, I was scared that she was not going to have any of her memories and we'd spend next season getting those back. But luckily, I was just being paranoid. Rather, she was just preggers, like Dan, you suspected last week, though I was sort of correct because she didn't know at the time she was pregnant when she said it. So you were right, and I was kind of close. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, how badass was it the way Olivia just stuck out her hand and caught Belle's super bullets and then threw them back at the Jessica character? That was pretty awesome, and so was the fact that we finally got a glimpse into the scene where September was not further along in his timeline than us, and we got to see how he was shot. That was pretty awesome. I'm still waiting to see that YouTube cut-together video with all the Observer scenes in their timeline's chronological order as opposed to our timeline's chronological order. So YouTubers, get on that, okay? Oh, man. 
This episode had a little bit of everything and made for a great season finale. Seriously, this may be the best one of the four, as you said, Dan. I can't wait to see where they go with the Observer Invasion story arc and whether we will see them battle against those Observers in the present time, whether we'll see a time jump immediately next season, or we'll get a little bit of both with the first half of the season leading up to the 2015 Invasion and the second half in the year 2036, like we saw in Letters of Transit. Whichever way they go, (laughs) I really cannot wait. And September cannot come fast enough. Yes. Well, you know, it was interesting, and I just thought of this. The scene where Walter shot Olivia in the head, it was in the exact same place that Walter did it in the season three finale. You're right. Exact same shot, exact same camera angle. Yep. Just thought that was interesting. It's like, I had thought of that. Despite the realities changing, the different things happening, some of the same outcomes have still happened. In that reality, in that timeline... The future agent was their niece, right? Right, yep. And then in this timeline, the future agent is their daughter. Right. So very similar, but slightly different. And that's kind of exactly. cool, too, that same things happen, but they lead different ways. And that that really brings back the two separate universes and the whole idea that every time a decision is made, a new universe exists. Right, exactly. So essentially the whole time, every time we went to a different place, it's just essentially a different universe. Interesting. So that was cool. And even though you kind of knew what was going to happen, did you think the scene with Peter and Walter after Olivia got shot was really well done? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even even seeing her get shot was well done. Yeah. Because you didn't know how it was going to happen. Right. I mean, I, I knew what was going to happen. I knew in the back of my mind, but they had me totally hook, line, and sinker emotionally invested in those scenes. And that was just unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Yep. And it's a shame that not more people are watching this show, as I said before. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that you want to see the other side, and I do too, but I don't think it's going to be a weekly event. And I don't think we're going to see Lincoln as a series regular next week. I think cutting down on costs and things of that nature, they're going to have to cut some of the cast. And he was not mentioned in the future episode, so we can assume we'll get a closing out with them on the other side. But I don't think they'll reconnect the bridge necessarily. Yeah, or we're not going to get any crossing over. Yeah, I don't I don't think we'll get that. We may get some crossing over with Olivia doing it herself yeah. if she still retains that ability because there's some question to that because at the end, Walter was telling Peter that she may be back to normal. Well, I was trying to think of that. How did they get back over? Because didn't they cross to the other side to get out of the ship? Or was it essentially Walter shooting Olivia transported them back? To our side. Well, they were separate. They were in the bubble. Okay. They had, they had, they were still visible from the other side, but they weren't. So yeah, essentially they, they kind of did transport over, but when she died, they reverted back to that center thing. And since the ship was in our reality, when it, when it vanished, yeah, you from, automatically went back. To they the went reality. back there. Okay. Otherwise, we could have seen Peter get zapped yeah. to the other side, which would have been a nightmare. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, don't didn't go there. They're smarter than that. Yeah, exactly. These writers know better. And if this was impressive, I can't wait to see how this show's going to end. Especially now that they know they have an ending point and know where they need to build up to. Exactly. It's going to be great stuff. So great job to them. It's unfortunate more people aren't watching this show. I hope they discover it more so in the future. And again, it might be meant to be that it ends with this 13-episode season next year so it doesn't get old and tired and we turn against it like we did with Bones. So we have to think this might be for the best. 
especially after we witnessed what happened for the show that we're going to talk about next, Supernatural, that they're crazed sixth season, which almost totally ruined five seasons of really great television. But they turned it around somewhat with seven. So we're going to talk about a little bit of that turnaround with our discussion on the Supernatural episode, There Will Be Blood. Dean and Sam must search for three key items to defeat Dick Roman and the Leviathans. Their quest takes them to Crowley and the Alpha Vampire, but the Leviathans will stop at nothing to kill the Winchesters and put their plan of global domination into effect. This episode of Supernatural was more about setup than anything else. That was okay since it was nice to see some familiar faces back on the show. Like Jim Beaver returning again as Bobby. Got our man Mark A. Shepard reprising his role as the Demon King Crowley. Also, there were some solid brotherly squabbling moments between Sam and Dean sprinkled throughout the episode that really made me chuckle, such as Dean complaining about the Leviathan's master plan, forcing him to eat rabbit food, and the whole sequence where the brothers took blood from a man infected by the Leviathan's contaminated corn syrup, who ironically was wearing a Plucky's Magical Menagerie t-shirt, referencing an episode a little bit earlier this season. And the other aspect that I have to give this episode credit for was how they brought back the alpha concept in such an accessible manner because I was really nervous when I saw the alpha vampire in last week's preview that the Leviathan story was going to get bogged down by all of the mythology that really made season six a mess last year. But thankfully, even though it was referenced, the writers sidestepped a lot of these complications by just simply making the alpha vampire the leader of a vampire horde that Sam and Dean needed blood from to kill the Leviathans. Can ask for the very direct foreshadowing that we will see the Alpha Vampire next season. I'm cool with that, based on it putting a face to a group of monsters which have always delivered some of the show's best action-packed episodes. And I can't wait to see a few more next season, as long as they don't do something stupid like DB turned into a vampire again. Bringing things back to this current season, although it was used to create quite a bit of humor in this episode, the Leviathan's master plan of contaminated corn syrup makes sense because, one, contaminated corn syrup would be incredibly frightening in real life, since it is in almost everything you could buy at a local grocery store. And two, the idea of the contaminated humans being poisonous to all the monsters fits perfectly into this season's theme of Sam and Dean trying to decide if there could be a gray area for the supernatural beings they have spent their lives battling. Since the Leviathans have put the brothers in a situation where they must save the very things that they hunt. However, what really puts the pressure on the Winchesters to making the decision that supernatural beings aren't so bad is Bobby, who seems to be descending towards becoming a vengeful spirit as his ghostly powers continue to increase. In my opinion, what the writers are going for with this plotline is an exploration of the incredibly deep theme that we ultimately need to accept the death of a loved one, no matter how much we care for them, because the alternative is much worse. And with that, I don't want Bobby to experience the much worse, as in the Winchesters having to tragically burn his boats. But I would like to see him ascended to heaven, because once this ghost plotline is over with, I think we as the audience and the Winchesters are going to be at a point where we won't be tired of Bobby's character. But we will be able to accept his departure from the show. Even though right now all of the ghost stuff Bobby is doing, like possessing the hotel maid at the end of this episode, was pretty cool. Again, possession is also wrong got many levels. Again, probably not something the real Bobby would do, which I was proud to see the writers justify, with Sam being quick to mention that it's not Bobby that's vengeful. It's supernatural forces making him that way. 
but it's interesting that everything Bobby is doing seems to be about protecting Sam and Dean. He just seems to be going about it the wrong way due to his ghostly deterioration. Lastly, even though this episode was the middle of the bridge between point A and point B without really a beginning or an end, I enjoyed watching it to the point that the writers did their job of getting me fired up for next week's season finale, where it appears Crowley and Nick Roman they are going to make some kind of deal to kill the Winchesters. Can with these two savvy, villainous businessmen to ultimately stand for everything Sam and Dean hate, combining forces? Who knows what kind of trouble lies ahead. But knowing Crowley, there might be some sort of double-cross in order. So with that, I'm going to pass things out to you, Nico, with your thoughts on this penultimate episode of Supernatural. This week's episode was a little bit of a letdown from the past few that have been fairly high intensity and really pretty good. But that's okay, because as you said, Dan, this was a setup episode for next week's season finale, which seems like it will wrap up the Leviathan story arc finally, and maybe actually be fairly good conclusion to the very up and down rebound seventh season that was still much better than the abomination of the sixth season. I find it ironic that of all seasons, this was the one that got an extra episode, as though they needed more time to tell the Leviathan story. It feels as though this storyline has been stretched further than it can go already, and yet this is where we get an extra hour. If only we could go back in time and put that additional episode into that strike short in season three, I would have been much happier. But alas, we can't do that. Yeah. This week's story finally kicked off Dick Roman's master plan to affect the food supply and fatten up the human race for a glorious people buffet. The humor of the food storyline was naturally Dean's reaction to having his precious junk food taken away from him. No prepackaged food was safe, which to Dean's horror meant no pie. Dick Roman, played by James Patrick Stewart continued to be the only interesting part of the Leviathan story arc. And since he killed Bobby, Roman is also the only reason the fight feels at all personal to the Winchesters, not to mention to the ghost version of Bobby. Plus, one thing they got right with the entire Leviathan story arc is Dick Roman, who is so smugly self-assured and ruthless that I'm really looking forward to Sam, Dean, Bobby, or whoever gets to do it, taking him down. I think we will feel satisfied when that happens. I can't wait to see him have a scene, another scene with Mark A. Shepard. Well, we're going to get that. I know, the two of them together is chilling villains. But really, the return of the Alpha Vamp was the best part of this episode for me. Why? Because, as I said last week, I was really interested in the Alpha story arc last season, and it was nice to see it return this year. They made a mess of it in Season 6 and really did not do what could have been done with an amazing story arc and really didn't do it justice. But at least this season, we got a little more from a great character played by Rick Worthy. Worthy's alpha vampire was nicely unsettling. To say nothing of how creepy it was that he had a couple of kidnapped kids with him, like his, quote, daughter Emily. That was messed up. Her entire situation of being abducted as a child and kept by the alpha vamp was disturbing in and of itself, but got even more so when she betrayed the Winchesters to the alpha, selling them out to her, quote, daddy. Although Sam and Dean necessarily had to work with the vampire against what turned out to be their common enemy of the Leviathan, it was nice that the Winchester boys retain enough of their hunter instincts to feel unhappy about it and to insist that the little boy be set free when they go. The alpha vampire's comment that he will see you next season was a little bit too much on the nose. (laughs) But it would be great if they did come back and deal with him next year. I think that's the plan because that actor is great. 
Oh yeah, Rick Worthy is is great, especially in this character. Yeah, so I'd bring him back. That's fine. Yeah, so as I close out my side, I have to ask, do you think they will deal with Bobby next week, or is that something that they will leave until, quote, next season? I'm thinking they may resolve his entire situation in the finale, which will make it feel rushed. But I think Jim Beaver has become too in demand to keep on for another season without being returned to a show regular. So they may try to finish up his arc this season, and maybe it will have to do with how they take down Dick Roman, and everything will make sense, but I really just hope it doesn't feel like an afterthought in next week's finale. That would be a terrible thing to do to such a great character well maybe it'll be a type of thing like they did with sam jumping in the hole with lucifer you know maybe bobby and dick roman go down together i could see that and that that could be the only way that it was if they did it quick it would be satisfying but i'm afraid that jim beaver is not going to get the send-off that he deserves because he was instrumental from season two on as being their go-to guy he was the number one go-to guy for the Winchesters. So to do anything less than right. give him a fitting send-off would be almost sacrilege to this the good parts of this show. But I, I do think that episode where Bobby dies was a very good tribute to the character. Absolutely, but then they brought him back as a ghost. So <laughs> you have to give him well, a good you know, send-off but it, I, I've seen worse send-offs. True. That's what true. I'm saying. Absolutely that, true. I mean, if this, is this what it has to be? That's what it has to be. In my opinion, I think this show probably should have stopped when it was intended to stop at season five. Because I, I just don't see how there's going to be any ending anymore that everyone's going to be satisfied with. Or a character ending. I just, I don't see it there anymore. I enjoy watching the show. I'm not going to stop watching it. Right, but right. We're, we're not at a Bones situation right no, now. No, but we're not at a point where I think we're ever going to be completely satisfied with the end of the show. I agree. I agree. That's a great point, Dan. So that's where I'm at with it. Again, and with Bobby's death and all of it. I just, I don't see how it can be that way anymore. And again, this new showrunner may come in and may totally set things up in a different direction and see things in a whole new light that we haven't thought of and maybe we'll see an end. I think Sarah Gamble's philosophy on the show was really dark and bleak for Sam and Dean. I think she wanted to see them tormented. And this new guy coming in may have a different philosophy. He may agree with you and I. I don't know. We'll just have to see, I guess. Yep. What I'm looking forward to, you know, when Smallville did a change-up on their writers and showrunners, I thought the show got a little bit better and set up nicely into a finale. That I'm hoping the same scenario happened with Super. So with that, I, I don't think you've got any more to say. Nope. I'm just here to do a great finale for Supernatural. So with that, let's move out of the closing. Danica, you want to tell everybody what we're going to be doing next week? Yeah, on next week's episode, we will be reviewing the season finales for Once Upon a Time, Bones, Person of Interest, and Supernatural, since Castle, Big Bang Theory, and Fringe are now done for the season. We are also going to be giving you our favorite comedic moments from Modern Family, and not just one, but three episodes of Community, which will serve as their season finale. But we'll get one more Modern Family after that. Then we're going to take a two-week hiatus to further develop the Across the Airwaves website and podcast to plan out our summer programming and take a little vacation. And then we'll get back into things with our Legend of Korra episode and that last Modern Family episode. But don't worry, because Michael's show ATA Retro Reviews will be continuing as well as DC Nation until those cartoon series go on hiatus. By the way, be sure to check out that DC Nation podcast hosted by Dan and Michael, also available on our website and iTunes. 
Yeah, and with that, real quick, check out Michael's podcast, ATA Retro Reviews. But he and his partner in crime, Wu Kim, they basically review right now episodes of Smallville, but they're planning on extending their show to reviewing episodes of Chuck, and they've also reviewed episodes of Supernatural in the past. And they may also be discussing summer movies. God, I'm not sure on everything that they're doing, but check their show out for a mixed band of fun about all sorts of things in pop culture. Also, if you enjoyed the Avengers movie or are still planning on going to see it, be sure to check out our Road to the Avengers podcast mini-series where Michael and I basically provide you with audio commentary on all the films leading up to the Avengers, which is now in theaters. I advise you to listen to our podcast. Bob, it's just a great way to get you hyped up about the movie. And also, we're going to be starting another podcast mini-series sometime in the middle of June called Road to the Dark Knight Rises, where we will be watching in order Christopher Nolan Batman films leading up to The Dark Knight Rises. So be sure to check all that out. Also, if you want to contact us about your thoughts on any of the season finales we've discussed this week, or your predictions for the season finales that are going to be released this week, feel free to contact us by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. There you can contact us through email. There are emails acrosstheairways at gmail.com. Also, you can contact us and also keep track of the movie and TV news that Nico finds out during the week and follow our podcast releases by liking us on Facebook. You can also find out the same information by following us on Twitter. Get our Twitter is Across Airwaves. There's no the there. There's just Across Airwaves. And you also can keep track of the movie and TV news and our podcast releases by following us in our circle on Google+. It's a great way for you to keep track of everything across the airwaves through social networks. Also, if you'd like, you can leave us a voicemail with any of your thoughts on any of the shows we cover. And we will play this on air. So if you want to be a part of our show, it's a great way to do so by being heard on air. And what number can people call? Nico? 773-809-3363. Also, if you'd like, you can access our YouTube channel, which features all sorts of previews and promos for upcoming summer movies and TV show episodes coming out, as well as the Across the Airways events. Also, our YouTube channel is home to Nico's video podcast, News with Nico, where he provides all of you with the movie and TV news he finds out every week. Also, if you'd like, you could download our Android app by clicking the link on the right-hand side of our page. And through that, you could contact our podcast and also listen to our podcast episodes all through your cellular phone. So with that, once again, for our ATA Retro Reviews hosts, Michael J. Petty and Wu Kim, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Rutsteck. And until next week, we'll catch you on the airwaves. And enjoy this week's season finales, everyone. See ya. We are young. Lifts, man. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.